So this morning, it is Advent, love. I read from first from John when I started the service. I want to read from this again. Listen to this with fresh ears. Speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is speaking of Jesus. This is one of those passages where it so clearly is talking about Jesus and God being one, that Jesus was, was God's word in the beginning. And if you think about the creation of the world, bringing everything into uh, being. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet by his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is good news. Good, good news. One of the famous translations that often gets uh, picked up of this passage is Eugene Peterson's translation in the message, which is technically a paraphrase of the Bible, but it's, he's an expert in ancient languages, so sometimes paraphrases can better express the translation than English words, believe it or not. And uh, one of the things Eugene Peterson says is, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And that's actually a really good, a really good translation, you know, the Word became flesh, the Word of God became flesh and moved into our lives, moved into our world uh, in, in, in a limited sphere with limited relationships. And now here we are all these years later post Jesus' death and resurrection, recipients of his light and his love and called like Jesus to be a light to the world that we live in. Uh, God was really bringing his message to its fullness in Christ, you know, is the final word of God to us, Jesus Christ on the cross. So today, as I said, we're talking about love. And this is a, a topic that is very, very close to my heart as someone who, uh, who was essentially converted from a religious experience of Christianity to a living experience of Christianity in Christ. You know, my conversion feels a lot more like a being saved from religion than from anything else, if you were to ask me. And I know that I was saved from my sins, but I feel like I was saved from a real oppressive uh, religion um, where it was very hard to, to, to think about God in such a way as to relate to him and connect with him, which we all desperately need to do. 
So this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, this, this theme of love and Jesus coming in the world as the love of God incarnate, as the best representation of who God is to humanity, not translated through a prophet's words or through um, cosmic events, but, but translated directly into human form. It says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So no one has ever seen God. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, um, we see what God is like as if he was in our neighborhood. And we can picture how we would be received or maybe spoken to by Jesus, how he would uh, interact with us. That's why reading these Gospels is so valuable. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can see who God is. If you're anything like me, it's hard for us to not only know intellectually and theologically, not only know intellectually, but to feel in our emotions, to feel in our core being, to be convicted and convinced internally of God's love for us and his affection for us. Often it seems easier to believe that God loves and accepts other people around you, and you find yourself saying such nice things to those around you with full conviction. It's easier to, to to convey that to other people. But for us, the ones who know better than anybody what truly resides inside of us, who have the darkness inside of us, who have this hole inside of us, who feel like a hypocrite, you know, for those kinds of people, uh, whatever you might call that feeling internally, it can be hard to receive God's love for us that he's freely given, to accept the idea that the Bible consistently teaches that we are God's beloved children. That's what the Bible teaches as John says in 1 John 3, 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. There's a lot of exclamation points in there, and that's a great, a great passage. We are God's beloved children. See how great the love the Father's lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. That is what we are, extra on love. At times, life is, is confusing and especially harsh. And at times, people and situations themselves become excessively harsh and difficult to deal with. And especially at those times, if you're anything like me, we tend to find the Bible and God to be confusing and harsh as well. Just at the time when we need to connect to the Father's love and find a refuge in Him, we find it the hardest to connect with Him. And we, we project onto God the difficulties we're having outside of our of ourselves. Our pain will often cause us to, to just overlook and breeze by entire portions of the Bible that we read, which we'll look at later. And uh, we, we breeze over parts of the Bible that talk about God's love for us and being loved by God, about his help for the burdened, about the access we have to the throne of grace and the confidence we should feel as we approach. We breathe, we, we breeze by these parts of the Bible, but we stop and we meditate and dwell on what we perceive as being the harshest sections of Scripture, creating for ourselves a rich and, in the end, theological, nonetheless, tapestry that paints God as a monster of sorts, as an unbalanced, monstrous being. We're focused so much on, on, on the wrong stuff. We, we look at the Bible and we see a God who is quick to anger and poor in love, a God of our own making, expertly glued together by how we feel, like a two-year-old with a hot glue gun and lots of construction paper. You know, we, we, glue to, we cobble together the most confusing and scary parts of the Bible, and we overlook the huge message of Scripture to us. And in our pain, we reject 
the mystery of who God is and what he does and why he does it, and we create instead very firm internal ideas about God, about him being un- un- unreasonably harsh and angry. The problem is you can't really live with a God you've created in your mind. It's oppressive. Even if you've cobbled him together using real Bible verses, you can't live with an unbalanced vision of God. Because the God that we make in our mind is often unapproachable. He does not accept our attempts to follow him. He thinks far more about punishing us than redeeming us, this God in our mind. This twisted God of our imagination doesn't even exist, even though we use certain verses of Scripture to show him to ourselves time and time again. And really, we, we do something that is not at all appropriate at Christmas time, but it's more a Halloween thing. We create a Frankenstein's monster of theology, something to be avoided, dead parts sewn together and animated by our own imaginations. Um, best to fly under the radar of that God. It seems to me, and I, I derive this from Scripture, that Jesus spent a very large part of his teaching ministry trying to convince people that God was, at the very least, better than a subpar, it says evil, parent. He says, which of you parents, if your kid asks for a drink, would give him a scorpion, or asks you for bread, would give him a rock? If you who, who are evil know how to good give, give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven? There's an understanding in the way Jesus is talking here that people thought of God, their vision of God, was like sub, subpar parent, even evil parent, was their, their baseline. Jesus spends some of his ministry trying to convince people that God is at least better than an unjust judge who only brings about justice because someone pesters him enough to do it. Jesus tells a whole parable about this. Um, God is better than that, Jesus tries to convince his crowds. Jesus tries to convince his people that God loves a sparrow and sees when each one struggles and falls to the ground. He, he loves and sees that. So at the very least, Jesus says, you guys are more valuable than many sparrows. At the very least, in God's sight. Just the way Jesus taught, it shows me that people had wrong images of God in their mind as well. That their God that they believed in was crueler than the worst parent, was less just than an unjust judge, crooked judge, and that he didn't take into account his creation. And Jesus said time and time again, he's a good parent, he's a good father. He is a just judge. He, he says, uh, you know, you are more valuable than many sparrows, and not one of them falls to the ground without the father noticing them. This was Jesus' crusade. It seems that there are lots of theological Frankenstein's monsters walking around in people's minds, just like in our day today, And Jesus' audience did not have a very full and positive image of who God was. Similar to us many times. But fortunately for them and for us, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, uh, whose coming we are celebrating today, moved into the neighborhood. In the season of Advent, we have been given a glimpse of the invisible God in human form, it says in Colossians 1.15. When we look at Jesus, we see what God the Father looks like in a way that we can understand as human creatures not veiled in mystery and unknowing in fear. And the fact that God sent Jesus is a message in itself. It means that we needed to see God in this way. In order that the revelation that began in Genesis of who God is would be made complete. A picture of God that's full and powerful. A picture of God that we can, we can live with and even benefit from and relate to. When God came in Jesus, people could see him, could touch him, could feel him, could hear him, and could see a message from God 
and, and see that God cares and wants us to know him and to relate to him personally. And the fact that God came as a man and suffered as a human, ultimately allowing himself to be put to death by his own creatures, even as he breathed forgiveness over them, um, this Jesus is the one true God. And he's inviting relationship uh, to those around him, just like he did when he walked on earth. In one of his best, most celebrated parables in Luke 15, Jesus presented an image of God that was hard to believe it was so good. And this is the story of the prodigal son, the big brother and their father. So those three guys, the young son, the older brother, and the father. The father did not disown or punish his younger son, even when his son extorted all of his inheritance money and squandered it in wild living. Instead, the father waited each day, it says, peering down the road, straining his eyes to see if his son was returning. Even as the younger son was soliciting prostitutes and getting hammered and partying, the father was sitting on the porch watching and waiting for his son to come home, not to find a punishment, but to find full acceptance as his beloved son with all the benefits contained in that relationship. And the father in that parable ended up treating the, in, the younger son, relating to him as if he had never sinned in the first place, celebrating his return, giving him the fattened calf and the, and the rings on his fingers and the, and, the, and the robe. And not only this, the same father also loved the older son very deeply. Even when, just like Jonah, the older son despised his little brother to the point that he wanted his brother to be punished by the father and wished the father would punish him. But we learn in this parable that both sons, the clear sinner and the religious responsible son, are both equally loved by the father and have full access to the inheritance the father gives just by nature of coming home to him. This is the message we get from this parable. And uh, I, lo I love what, what the father says, you know, put, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, kill the fattened gaff. For my, the son of mine that was dead is alive. He was lost, he is found. He's celebrating. The older son is upset about this. He never so much as killed like a small goat for me when I, when I was around. And the father says, actually, everything I have is yours. You have the same inheritance as the younger son. But let's, let's rejoice for this moment because this younger son came back to me as well. For both sons, there's grace, there's mercy, there's love, there's acceptance. It seems to me that Jesus spent a lot of time and spoke a lot of words trying to convince people that God was better than their crooked imaginations had painted him to be. And I think we need that same help from Jesus today. If we are to have a true image of God that we can, that we can relate to and live with and connect with, Interestingly, Jonah, who we visited for several weeks in our last series here, he actually, ironically, knows who God really is in his heart. We find out in, in Jonah 4. He just doesn't like it, which is also within the realm of possibility. He's like the older son in the parable in Luke 15. He, uh, he, he, he knows who God is, but he rejects who God is and doesn't like who God is. And we would think that this is unforgivable, but once again, to our great surprise, God leans down into Jonah's life and lovingly tries to teach him about his love, his kindness, and his compassion for all of the people and the animals he had created in Nineveh, even Jonah's enemies. No fire, no brimstone, just a father trying time and time again to reason with his child who's holding hatred for others in his heart. But God's nature and kindness are not lost on Jonah. Jonah knows exactly who God is. It says in Jonah 4.2, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that that is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, God, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, this is a terrible, to Jonah, a terrible thing because his enemies are, are spared. And, um, and God leans down and we see him teaching Jonah, trying to teach Jonah through all these different hands-on uh, pictures that he cares about all the people of Nineveh despite their wickedness, and he also cares about the cows, the animals that he's made, the livestock. Jonah is quoting from a much greater authority than himself, which is, which is God himself. In Exodus 34, 5-7, God shares his name, the Lord, with Moses after giving the Ten Commandments the second time, I believe. And it says this in Exodus 34, 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So let me ask you, you know, what did you notice about God's self-description here? If all you really took in was that last part that was a little scary and confusing then you are the person I'm talking to this morning. That's the part you focused on with all of your energy. We have three and a half verses in this passage about God's love, his patience, his compassion, the richness of his love, his faithfulness to us that goes far, far beyond our unfaithfulness to him. We have a God who maintains his love to thousands, forgiving all wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When we read this, we think, this is something I need to connect with. But all we hear when we read this section of Scripture sometimes is the last half of verse 7, something which is confusing and foreign to our understanding that says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And for some people, when they read the Bible, that will just negate all the beautiful things that passage was saying about God. And it's something we're not going to, you know, go into the original meaning of today. This is just an example of how we overlook the love, mercy, grace, and accessibility of God uh, sometimes that we focus on parts that are out of proportion to other parts. And when we do that, we create this theological Frankenstein by not paying attention to the dominant parts of the Scripture and what they're saying about God's kindness, His loving nature, His compassion, His forgiveness, and His grace. We ultimately see that in Jesus Christ. But after three and a half verses of just these attributes of God, we read the end of verse 7, and we say to ourselves, okay, what, what have we learned from Exodus? Well, we learned God is a punishing God. He punishes all, for all are guilty. He punishes not only the sinner, but their kids, their grandkids, and their great-grandkids. That's what we walk away with. But the problem with that is it's, it's, a, it's a monster. This is not a fully-orbed truth about God. It's something we internalize as being the whole truth. And because it doesn't contain all of the truth about God, it's not true in the end. It ends up being a half-truth which keeps us from relating to God. When we are not doing well, when, when, when life becomes harsh around us, we tend to downplay the things we need to hear the most from God and to focus on negatives and to consider that God is probably as harsh as life appears to be. And we hold sometimes, if we're, if we're a Christian or a religious person, we will hold tightly to concepts ripped from their original context and dialed up to the most extreme levels of harshness at times, emotionally. And in the end, it becomes something we can't live with, something that isn't fully true about God, just a half-truth or a partial truth. 
To follow the true God, we have to accept the truth that he loves us, that he is Jesus, that his ways are often mysterious. And when we don't understand them, some of those ways should be left in the realm of mystery as we trust in God like a small child trusts their parent. Sometimes we just need to trust in God. This is what children do in loving families. They, they don't understand everything their parents are telling them to do, but fundamentally they know that they are deeply loved. They believe uh, that their parents have regard for them, that they can carry with them, that can offer strength to them, that their parents are always going to be there for them and love them. And they believe that, that to such an extent they can carry that around with them as a living security in life. And that is also what we need to have, uh, likewise, in our relationship with God. We need, to, we need to have a security in the love of God that we sing about every Sunday where we believe that God's love for us, his mercy for us, his grace for us, his kindness towards us, his compassion for us is never-ending, unceasing. That whether we are the younger son who is just thankful to hear this message or we're the older son who's right now thinking about this message is so unbalanced and we shouldn't be preaching so heavily on the love of God in church, gosh. You know, for the oldest son and the youngest son, this is a message for you, that God loves you, that God wants to help you, that God wants to connect with you. For goodness sakes, when he said, Jesus said, it's better for you if I go, because when I go, I will send the helper to you. He calls himself the helper. Who's he helping? Helping us. God is here to help us. He wants to help us. He wants to walk with us like a father walks with his kids. So just like, uh, like children and loving families know, they will always have the love and strength of their parents behind them. So we must, no matter where we come from, internalize the love of God for us. The same love that Jesus reflected in his relationship with the Father, where he would go to meet with the Father in the dark, early part of the morning just to be with the Father and hear from him. Where it doesn't, there's no like cliff notes of what Jesus talked about with the Father, but it was an intimate time alone with the Father that he needed. And he called him, he called him his, his, his Father and told other people to call him their Father as well. This was what Jesus was trying to present to us. The psalmists abound in, in talking about God. Psalm 86 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And again in Joel 2.13, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. What beautiful things to hold in our hearts. But what a tragedy that when we are doing the most poorly, when our external circumstances are, are rough or relationships are rough or things become stressful, we tend to project that right into God. He's just as harsh as life. But he's not. He's a loving father and he's unperturbed. He loves you as much today as he did when he first saved you. But in our pain, we, we just can't receive the blessing of the full truth of God, of his great love for us. Which is, taught, which is spoken of in the Scripture, but we focus on smaller parts of Scripture that, that are harder to understand and throw all the love stuff into question for us. Um, and, you know, Frankensteins are no good at Christmas time. That's my fundamental name of the sermon. Frankenstein's no good at Christmas time. We need uh, the real love of God. We need to understand his love for us. There was a theologian named William Shannon who's a professor from Rochester, New York, so a local guy, 
He's since passed away, but I read this quote. It says, A false and illusory notion of God sees God as someone who is gracious to me when I am good, who punishes me when I am bad. This is a typical inner notion of God people walk with. He is the God of Noah, who sees people deep in sin, repents that he's made them, and resolves to destroy them. He is the God of the desert, who sends snakes to bite his people because they are murmuring against him. He is the God of David, who practically decimates a people because their king, motivated by pride, perhaps, takes up a census of his empire. He is the God who exacts the last drop of blood from his son, so that in his just anger, evoked by sin, he may be appeased. This God, whose moods alternate between graciousness and fierce anger, a God who is still all too familiar to many Christians, is a caricature of the true God. This God does not exist. This is not the God whom Jesus reveals to us. This is not the God whom Jesus cried, called Abba. If in our pain we create an image of God that is severely unbalanced and don't take into account Jesus, the image of the invisible God, what Jesus taught, how Jesus loved, then we are nursing an unbalanced picture. God sent Jesus to complete our theology of God. And in our pain, um, we, we reject, we tend to reject those parts that we most need in our time of need. If you're not the kind of person that struggles to believe that God loves you and that you are God's beloved child, then I guess this sermon is not that enjoyable to you probably. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad that you already know this deeply and are walking around with it. I'm glad for that. Um, I hope that people in this room are bored to tears right now. Like, yeah, we know. God loves us. We know. This is so great. I know God loves me. No problem. I hope that you're bored, but I know a lot of people um, do not have such an easy existence. They're hearing a sermon like this, and they're holding on to this like a thread. You know, does God love me? Does God delight in me? Does God like me? Can God like me? Does God really want to be a part of my life even when I'm not functioning very well? You know? If everyone else is abandoning me, should I expect that God will go the same direction? And I think the answer of the Bible is no. That God does love you. Perhaps especially when you're struggling in your fear and your burdens and your anxiety, um, those are the times when Jesus draws people near to himself and allows them to hear his heart of love for them. And for many people, as they seek to follow God through hard times, the worst possible ideas pop up at the worst possible times to kick us in the gut, to keep us down. But the word of God to us is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. This sermon is about God's love for the ones who find it most difficult to receive emotionally, even as they believe it intellectually. You can believe all the right theologies, but you don't receive the result of that theology in your heart. You're disconnected from the love of God when we sing worship songs. It doesn't register with you, even though you believe the right things. This sermon is for you. I learned in my uh, catechism growing up that we had to memorize in order to go roller skating. <laughs> that, um, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's like an awesome catechism question. It makes me think we should have catechism here and go roller skating too. But when life becomes harsh, we miss, and we project that harshness onto God, and God becomes unapproachable. 
we stop being able to fulfill what God created us to be, which is to just enjoy his presence and glorify him with our lives. This is the main point of why God made us and why God has us here, to relate to him even through, perhaps, perhaps mostly through the dark nights when we can't see the truth clearly. To not plug our ears when it says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, and then open them to hear the parts that are confusing to us and plug them up again. To not overlook the love of God, and especially not to overlook Jesus, who was a really big exclamation point on God's message of love. If we are honest, I think we have to admit that for people that struggle with the love of God on the emotional level, it's a lifelong process to come to grips with God's love for us. And just when you think you have, you've received it and you believe it, you have challenges in your life that make you question and you come back to those, those fearful uh, images that you have. And some people have, have it easier than others. Some people seem to get through life easier. People are able to approximate God's love for them based on love they've received outside of themselves. You know, they always know that God is good, God is strong, God is for them and with them to help them in their struggling, in their sin and darkness. But some people have a much harder time doing that. I love talking to people that have no trouble and just quizzing them about their lives and their thoughts about God. But I feel very drawn to people who struggle and find it difficult to receive God's love for them. Who, for people that lift their heads for a moment, looking for grace and mercy, and they catch a glimpse of Jesus. But then their heads get weighed down by life. And they feel, they start to think all kinds of unbalanced stuff. And they can't even lift their head to look at God. I've heard so many stories of people missing out on the love of God just for confusion, for being weighed down and burdened by life. And those are the kind of people that I feel called to. And I think of all the years that I could have been preaching on this theme of love, you know, this has been a really, really tough year for a lot of people. The strongest people that I know are struggling really hard. A lot of people struggled in the beginning of the pandemic and then they kind of got used to it. But now we're at the point where those who were not struggling in the beginning are beginning to struggle and suffer. Especially through the Christmas time. There's lots of frustration, anger, pain, fear. I mean, if I know five people who can't visit their loved ones in a nursing home, you know, that means everyone else knows those, those five people too. Um, there's a lot of pain going on. A lot of people... Um, not able to hold the hands of their loved ones as they pass from this life to the next. Sad stuff. And times like this, I think, cause many people to be weighted down, to close their eyes, to bow their head, and for many people, simply to be inundated with the negative voices that make God unapproachable in their mind. God cannot see me in the suffering. God cannot see me when I'm not at my best. God doesn't want to hear from me until I get this figured out. But I think of all the years where this theme of love and God's love could be appropriate, this is the time to reach deep into the, the fullness of Scripture to see the picture of God that he paints for us in Christ, the most full revelation of who God is, the person of Jesus. To read a passage like this in John 1 and think about how this act of God to become flesh to move into our neighborhood was for us to draw near to God, especially in the darkness when we're suffering. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, and he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Amen. I read a story this week of a, a, a man who was, uh, a family who, who consulted a, a local priest uh, to come and visit their loved one in the hospital. The person was in the end stages of, of cancer. And the priest went into that hospital room and he was trying to help the man connect with uh, the love that God had for him through this part of life. And um, he said to the man who was a believer, if, you, if, if in this suffering you find it very difficult to picture Jesus and God, and I want you to look at this empty chair over here and just imagine Jesus sitting in this chair. You know, just imagine he's here in this room with you. Pour out your heart to him. Just look as a visual aid. Just look at that chair and consider that Jesus is in that chair. So the man seemed to think that was pretty good advice. So a couple of weeks later, the, the wife called the priest back and said that uh, he asked if, if he, she said that the, her husband had died. And the priest said, did he, did he go in peace? Did he feel connection to God in his final moments? And the wife said that he did, but that uh, she, had, she had talked to him and spoken to him, that he had even joked around with her, and then she had gone out shopping and then come home to find him dead. And next to his bed, he had pulled the chair next to his bed and was laying on it. And that's the heartbeat of Jesus for the suffering. We have to do these things to remember because this world is very harsh and can be very cruel. But the heartbeat of God is there for anyone that will have the audacity to recline on the bosom of the master. Look at the Jesus said they had the, the Last Supper. And John just reclining and laying on Jesus' chest. And John, who calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Pretty sure that that was available to anyone, anyone for the taking. But John... John said, I'm the one he loved. And Jesus probably said, well, I love everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he had, John had such an experience of the love and tenderness of Jesus that he, he felt free to lay there and to write about himself as the one Jesus loved. To the time that he died, he was that guy. And um, everyone that was around him knew that he was that one that Jesus loved because he experienced that love. 
And I, I think of that story of the chair and the, and the man and what a beautiful picture that is of what Jesus wants to give every sinner, every sufferer, every person that has inner darkness, any person that is overwhelmed by the, by the weight of religion, who is confused by the Bible, who just has a hard time focusing on the right things and just hears everything ultra-harshly, Jesus wants you to know that he's available. And he's, fundamentally, the message of this book is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood so that you could know the love of God and move beyond confusion to clarity on this issue. And, uh, and through that, to stand firm. So Julie's going to come and lead us in a closing song as we consider the advent of Jesus coming into the world, moving into the neighborhood. And if you'd like to sing along, the words will be on the screen, but if you'd like to close your eyes and just imagine, imagine your Savior sitting with you, wanting to say to you, come to me, you who are here, weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that when, when you described yourself, you said, I am gentle, humble in heart. Come to me. You will find rest for your soul. Thank you for reaching out to us, God, for sending Jesus to show us who you are and that Jesus' resurrection and living in us continues to this day. I just pray that Christ would be revealed to every heart this Advent season, that we would see beyond the lives and half-truths and hold on to the help that we need. We lift up uh, the rest of our time together, Lord, and we pray your blessing upon this season as we anticipate remembering when you came to earth, even as we all already rejoice with you as our helper within each of us. We lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.